0: Living on Earth relies on your generosity to broadcast each week. Please
1: donate now at LOE.org.
2: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. 2012 was the hottest year ever, beating the old record by a full degree, and it set new highs in terms of the dollar costs that wild weather and drought racked up.
1: Of the overall $160 billion in economic losses worldwide from natural disasters in 2012... 110 billion dollars were in terms of damage in the US alone.
2: Also coming to a bike path near you sometime soon, the Elf. It's a pedal and solar powered tricycle. Riding a bicycle
3: is problematic. You're out in the open, you don't have protection from the sun, and this wonderful invention, the Elf, you're actually enclosed just like a little tiny car, and you've got solar power assistance to get up the hills. What a great, great idea.
2: We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
4: Support for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in
2: Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Well, it's official. 2012 was the hottest year ever recorded in the U.S. and the second most severe in terms of extreme weather. It was also one of the most expensive years on record for damage caused by natural disasters. And 90% of the insured property damage around the world was occurred right here in the United States. We turn now to Ernst Rauch, head of the corporate climate center for the reinsurance company Munich Re, to explain why the U.S. was hit so hard by weather damage and why an insurance company needs a climate change expert.
1: Well, as a matter of fact, Munich Re is analyzing the impacts of climate change on our business, our reinsurance business, since the 1970s. So that's more than 30 years And the main reason is that we are one of the largest risk transfer companies when it comes to natural disasters. And that includes, of course, meteorological disasters like windstorms and and flooding. And obviously, climate change has already an impact based on our own data and research on the losses and development of losses of these perils over the last decades.
2: Now, I want to talk to you about a report that your company recently issued uh, that points out that... More than 90% of all the insured property damage in the world occurred in the U.S. last year. Why is that?
1: Indeed, uh, 2012, the natural disaster statistics were dominated by weather extremes in the United States. Worldwide, we recorded some $65 billion of insured losses from natural disasters, out of which almost $60 billion were in the U.S. And in the U.S., you had two major events. The one was Hurricane Sandy. And at this point in time, the insured losses alone for this event are at uh, some $25 billion. The second major natural disaster uh, was the drought affecting mainly farming business and the agriculture sector, out of which the insurance industry paid some $15 to $17 billion to 17000000000 dollars and that compares with an average payout in the agriculture sector of nine billion, so the excess losses difference between fifteen to seventeen and nine that 's most likely attributable to the drought uh, in the farming business in two thousand and twelve
2: so you 're talking about the insured losses here. Mm-hmm. How big are the uninsured losses from these disasters
1: in two thousand and twelve worldwide, the overall economic losses from natural disasters. We' at about 160 billion US dollars. So there is a gap between the overall losses of 160 billion dollars out of which 65 billion were paid by the insurance industry. And the difference between these two numbers, that's actually either paid by governments in terms of uh, subsidies or loans, or they are paid out of, of private uh, customers. Who have to carry by themselves uh, the loss burden if they are not insured properly. Of the overall $160 billion in economic losses worldwide from natural disasters in 2012, $110 billion were uh, in terms of damage in the US alone.
2: Why is the United States uh, suffering so much economic loss from natural disasters?
1: Well, the US has all kinds of natural disasters. That goes from Uh, tropical cyclones like Hurricane Sandy to tornadoes, you have flooding events, hailstorm events, all kinds of meteorological events. And other parts of the world, if you think about Europe, for instance, we do not have tropical cyclones like uh, Hurricane Sandy. We have very little tornado activity, and that makes some regions like Europe less exposed to meteorological disasters compared to the United States.
2: Now, these numbers have been going up over the years. Why is that?
1: Well, if we go back for the last 30-plus years in our database, the number of meteorological disasters worldwide has uh, more than tripled over the last three decades. And uh, by the same time and in the same period, the number of geophysical events like earthquakes or volcanic eruptions has not really changed. And that's indeed to us a strong indication that the frequency and severity, both of severe weather events worldwide, has increased over the last decades.
2: As we're speaking, the horrific fires are sweeping across uh, New South Wales and other parts of Australia. The local weather authorities had to add categories of heat warnings for folks, uh, coming up with different color codes for the maps. One, I believe, uh, to reach to 56 degrees Celsius, which for folks here in America, that's like 133 degrees. What's going on?
1: Yeah, what we currently see in Australia, in many places in Australia, are new records in terms of high temperatures. This is now for the ongoing season, But if we go back just to 2012, also the United States experienced the warmest year on record. And these are the sort of developments and and records which concern us as a risk taker because uh, this could already have a link to climate change and will give us a bit of a forecast or insight into what could happen in a warmer world Uh, Over the next decades and and centuries, in a warmer world, we will most likely see more of these events.
2: What would you like to see the U.S. government do in terms of addressing climate change and the mounting costs associated with it?
1: I think two tiers of a tragedy have to be addressed. The one is the mitigation of future losses and the vulnerability of societies, of cities, of people uh, when it comes to natural disasters. And that can be done by improving building codes, land use planning, uh, protection measures. And the second tier of a strategy is the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. And it will only have an, a positive influence uh, when it comes to our next generation, so our children and, and grandchildren, as greenhouse gases like uh, CO2 remain for more than 100 years in the atmosphere.
2: Ernst Rauch is uh, head of Munich Rees Corporate Climate Center. Thank you so much for taking the time today.
1: You're welcome. It was a pleasure.
2: And uh, how much snow do you have there in Munich?
1: Uh, Right now it's only raining. (laughs) So we have got absolutely no snow here in Munich. It's green and gray and rainy and warm outside.
2: Warren Buffett began the new year with a big buy, a $2.5 billion investment in two solar projects in Southern California. This isn't the billionaire's first venture into renewable energy. Mr. Buffett's a leader in the sector with multiple wind farms and other solar investments. Ethan Zindler is head of policy analysis at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. So, looking at the amount of money that Warren Buffett will make from uh, this investment, first, are we talking about him putting his own cash in, or is he borrowing money?
5: The projects have been bought by MidAmerican, which is owned by uh, Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, but uh, what we anticipate, at least, is that they will be refinanced at some future point by Buffett via the offering of some bonds. Uh, He did this previously with projects that he bought from a company
2: called First Solar, and, of course, Warren Buffett bonds give him an advantage.
5: Yeah, so if you're Warren Buffett, you can borrow money for usually a pretty good interest rate. You know, that's part of the strategy here. But I think, you know, in, in fairness, I don't think that he's exploiting, you know, or mid-Americans necessarily completely just exploiting the fact that this is Buffett. What they see, and I think a number of investors are starting to see, is that Large-scale solar projects that are going to produce a reliable amount of power and have signed contracts to sell that power at a fairly generous rate are pretty low-risk investments that can offer a good return. And then they get the extra bonus of the fact that people you know, understand that Warren Buffett does not invest in things unless he thinks that they uh, offer a good opportunity.
2: How important was it that he signed on the dotted line just after the so-called fiscal cliff in Washington?
5: Uh, I don't think actually the two are connected. The key tax credit or subsidy for the solar industry is what's called the investment tax credit. And essentially, it allows developers to take a 30% credit off the cost of their project. So if you're building a $100 million project, uh, essentially $30 million of that cost can be reduced from your future tax bills. And so that's a pretty generous subsidy, of course, and it's one that the solar industry actually has on the books for the next several years. Uh, It was not one of the things, though, that was on the table in the, uh, the recently concluded Fiscal Cliff
2: discussions. So California opened its carbon market at the beginning of this year. How do Warren Buffett's new solar acquisitions fit into this market? How are they affected by this market?
5: To some degree, they're a little bit apples and oranges in the sense that, you know, California has on the books its own aggressive, what's called renewable portfolio standard to install certain amounts of renewable uh, power generation. And that really is a big part of what's been driving large-scale solar activity out there. Certainly, uh, it doesn't hurt that, you know, if this is going to supplant or replace some generation that might have had emissions, that certainly helps towards uh, California meeting its carbon uh, emissions goals. But the primary driver of renewable energy in California has been the state-level renewable portfolio standard, plus the fact that the state has also had some other solar incentives.
2: Along with solar, uh, Buffett's invested in wind, and he's also interested in other types of renewable energy. So how likely is it Warren Buffett will make other big acquisitions in the renewable energy sector this year?
5: The U.S. market actually is going to, we foresee, certainly it's going to be a bit of a troubled year for the wind industry this year. And that does get back to an earlier question about uh, the fiscal cliff. Uh, One of the reasons is because that industry relies on a separate tax credit. And that credit technically actually expired at midnight, December 31st, 2012 and then was extended by Congress on January 1st, 2013. But the fact that it had been allowed to go as late as it did before getting extended, to some degree, put the U.S. wind market on hold. Um, While we think that the Buffett deal is a harbinger of things to come sort of uh, uh, more globally and on a macro basis, um, there are not necessarily as many large acquisition opportunities out there right now. There
2: are some for wind, but not so many for solar at the moment. How much does this acquisition of these solar companies in Southern California mark a turning point for this industry and what does Warren Buffett's deepening interest in this bode for the industry's future do you think?
5: Well, I think it's a very positive sign I mean Warren Buffett deploying two two and a half billion dollars that's capital at scale that we don't actually often see in our industry this is doing things in a much bigger way, and that's a very positive development for clean energy because if you look at how things like oil pipelines and natural gas pipelines or refineries are typically financed, they're done you know, in a big way at scale, often with bond offerings or with more sophisticated vehicles than have been available to the clean energy industry. So this is a very positive development in that respect. And then, of course, the other thing is Buffett, you know, is Buffett. You know, he brings a strong reputation with him and a lot of respect throughout other parts of the business community. In fact, we've certainly heard from clients or even new clients who say that they've gotten interested in this area because, you know, they want to know what Buffett's up to.
2: Ethan Zindler is head of policy analysis at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Thanks so much, Ethan. My pleasure. Just ahead, First Nation activists in Canada are organizing flash mob drum circles and dances, but it's hardly a celebration. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth, I'm Steve Kerwood. Canadian First Nations folk and friends recently drummed and chanted in a flash mob at a shopping mall in Winnipeg to protest Canadian government policies. They're demonstrating against recent legislation that they say undermines First Nation sovereignty and harms the environment. They're part of a movement called Idle No More that is making a splash in social media as well. Native American environmental activist and one-time Green Party candidate for Vice President Winona LaDuke recently wrote about Idle No More for the magazine The Progressive. She joins us now from her home on the White Earth Reservation in northern Minnesota, not far from the Canadian border. Welcome to Living on Earth.
6: Thank you. Hello.
2: So much like the Occupy Wall Street movement, these protests have rallied around a moniker, Idle No More. Where does that phrase come from?
6: It's very Canadian. That's all I've got to say. I think it means kind of get off your butt and let's get moving or that's enough.
2: Now, many have traced this movement back to the passage of a piece of legislation called Bill C-45 in Canada. Can you describe this law for us?
6: Generally, the bill guts every major Canadian environmental law over the past 30 years. Before the passage of Bill C-45, that 2.6 million rivers, lakes, and Canada's three ocean shorelines, a lot of water, had some protection. Pretty much gone now with the passage of that bill. Now about 87 of the lakes, rivers, are protected, and those are largely in the ridings of the conservatives that are part of the Harper government. First Nations are really at the front end of a lot of the assault on the land and the water. Since First Nations are the people that live in the places where the mines are, the tar sands, the, you know, destruction that is around Sarnia of, you know, sixty two chemical plants just inundating these tribal communities. They're at the front end of it. And they're saying, you know, not only did you just gut the laws, but you didn't even ask us, and you have some legal obligations under international law, which are called treaties, to talk to us about anything that affects our lands, our territories, and the rights of that were reserved and protected under those treaties.
2: What are some of the other deeper concerns that are motivating this movement?
6: Well, the general, you know, inequality that exists in Canada. You know, you're looking at these communities, for instance, Teresa Spence, the chief from Attawapiskat First Nation, which is a Cree village up on James Bay. She is, you know, from this community that has 1,549 residents, a third of them are under 19. They've been through... We'll go with hell. That's what I would describe the colonial policies of Canada. You treat them like third-class citizens in their own country. They're living in tents. They don't have sanitation. The village next door is importing water because they've got E. coli contamination in it. You know, you have basically third-world conditions, and then you add to it a diamond mine. De Beers, largest diamond mining corporation in the world, has moved into the north, is bringing billions of dollars worth of diamonds into markets. And, you know, when this money is coming into the markets, the pittance is going to these First Nations whose sanitation systems have now been essentially overrun by new workers, by new development, by new exploitation. And, you know, so Teresa Spence comes from a village that was, has basically been a shame to the Harper government for the past few years because, you know, the U.N., and the Red Cross went in there and said, you know, these people don't even have housing that is suitable. They're in minus 40 degrees, and the wealth is being extracted by De Beers. And frankly, that's kind of a snapshot of Canada. That's a snapshot of Canada historically, and it is an accelerated snapshot now.
2: So talk to me about the present protest. What form have they taken?
6: So with the use of social media... Not unlike Arab Spring, people have been organizing, they're called flash mobs, these you know, short protests in very public places, the Mall of America, you know, the mall in Broomfield at the Capitol rotundas, to be a voice of support for Teresa Spence, who's on a hunger strike, going into her fourth week now, demanding that Prime Minister Harper meet with Teresa Spence, meet with the First Nations and ultimately repeal. Bill C-45. In addition to that, the Amjuwong First Nation, the guys at Sarnia, blockaded a CN Railway. And, you know, what they're blockading is hundreds of train cars full of chemicals moving in and out of their community. And it's, you know, it's costing some money to the companies, but hopefully it's drawing some attention to the fact that, you know, this community is really toxic and they have to live there.
2: So Chief Teresa Spence uh, continues on her hunger strike. What role is her hunger strike playing in this movement?
6: Theresa Spence's courage has been the catalyst, has been the, you know, the flame that lit this. You know, she's a a middle-aged Cree woman. You know, Crees are tough, tough people. And she's courageous enough to go there, you know, with her medicines, with her, you know, some fish broth she's drinking, and she's going into a fourth week. The fact that Prime Minister Harper did not have the dignity to meet with, you know, the poorest people in the darn country until now and he's saying he'll meet on the 11th which is exactly one month after she started her hunger strike right across from his offices you know indicates how extremist his government is
2: so why do you think Idle no more has caught on in america as well you're saying that demonstrations are in this country as well as in canada
6: because i mean first of all the border is really a colonial creation that is pretty recent For people like the Anishinaabe who are in the northern part of what is called five American states and the southern part of what is called four Canadian provinces, predating by, you know, 4,500, you know, 5,000 years or so, our territory, predates the border. And so, you know, we don't, uh, rivers don't have a border, the toxic contamination, the uh, 240 gigatons of carbon that's going to be in the air out of the tar sands of Alberta pretty much doesn't have a border. And, frankly, Native people in this country are looking at some pretty dire circumstances, too. I mean, you've got widespread groundwater contamination from uranium mining in the southwestern United States. You have, you know, a sacred site, the San Francisco Peaks, being desecrated. You have Rio Tinto Zinc, a huge mining corporation, about to lay to waste a chunk of, you know, the upper peninsula of Michigan where the Keweenaw Band of Ojibwe have been fighting for a decade. You know, so we have very similar circumstances,
2: Where do you think the Idle No More movement is headed?
6: Well, hopefully it's headed for the repeal of Bill C-45. Hopefully it's headed for some dignity and negotiations with First Nations people for some cleanup, some security, for land rights, for water rights, for ecosystems, some reparations for all that wealth which has been pilfered, you know, over the past 50 years by major mining corporations with the blessing of the Canadian government. And hopefully, it's going to educate some Canadians and some Americans so that these issues, which, you know, they are native issues, but really they aren't making any new water. You know, the water that's contaminated by tar sands or by chemical companies is water that is going to contaminate us all. So hopefully, it'll get some action that is, you know, means that people are idle no more.
2: Winona LaDuke is a Native American activist, environmentalist, and author. Thanks so much, Winona.
6: Thank you for having me.
2: So, among your New Year's resolutions, maybe there's one that has to do with getting more exercise. Getting out on a bike, perhaps. But the dangers of bike riding and these short, dark days of winter and the problems of arriving all disheveled can put you off. Well, today, we report on a new invention that could be the answer for those problems, the elf. Made in the USA,
7: the elf is a revolutionary vehicle powered by you and the sun designed to make your commute more fun, practical, and affordable than ever before. It can legally go anywhere a bike goes, and its three-wheeled stability allows for tight cornering and easy
2: transitions from trail to street. That video is from the Kickstarter campaign launched to raise $100,000 to get the Elf off, or rather I should say, on the ground. It sounded intriguing enough to send Living on Earth's Helen Palmer on the road.
0: Organic Transit, that makes the Elf, occupies an old furniture warehouse in downtown Durham, North Carolina. In the huge showroom window is what looks like a large, green, egg-shaped motorcycle sidecar on top of a racing wheelchair. Now, a sun-powered tricycle sounds like the brainchild of a young alternative engineer, but its inventor hardly fits that mould.
7: Hi Helen, I'm Rob Cotter with Organic Transit.
0: Rob Cott is in his 50s, a slightly rumpled and unassuming-looking engineer with plenty of hands-on experience.
7: Many years ago, I was working for Porsche and BMW, more on the race car side of things, and I was living in Southern California, and they were building the Gossamer Condor and the Gossamer Albatross, the pedal-powered aircraft not too far from me, so I kind of linked up with those folks.
0: That led to a host of new possibilities. Cotter's a working inventor who's learned many skills along the way.
7: I became vice president of land for human-powered vehicles. I built a 62-mile-an-hour tricycle about 30 years ago. And from that point on, I built lots of funky little vehicles. I learned plastic forming, and composites. Uh, I put on the first solar car events, uh, races in the U.S. And um, once I realized people could go highway speeds at one horsepower, I realized how inefficient everything it is that we do.
0: That realization and all that experience went into making this new alternative vehicle, the ELF. Not something from Lord of the Rings, but an acronym.
7: It's actually electric, light and fun.
0: Light and fun, but not tiny.
7: It's under four feet wide, it's eight feet long, and a little over five feet tall.
0: At that height, he says, you sit in traffic at eye level with cars. The open sides and huge front windshield mean you can see, and the electric headlights and indicators mean you can be seen. You're protected by a sturdy aluminum frame that anchors the body panels front and back. There's space behind the driver to put a child seat, and it can carry up to 350 pounds of cargo. But the Elf is still a bicycle.
7: It has pedals and there's a chain and drives a rear wheel, but there's also solar panels and an electric motor to help uh, get it down the road. Or up the hill. Or up the hill, um, or longer distance, or carry lots of, you know, cargo.
0: Rob says the ELF gives people the choice of how much exercise to take. You can use the electric motor to help get up the hills on the way to work, so you don't arrive too sweaty, then let it sit in the sun for the solar panels to charge the battery. And it's not only the ELF's colour and its power source that are green.
7: A lot of the materials going into this are recycled materials. As time goes on, we're going to be use more biological materials, like hemp and seagrass and things like that, but currently we're using recycled plastic. The aluminum's 45% recycled and um, it's just a very efficient package, so efficient that it gets an equivalent of about 1800 miles per gallon.
0: But of course it uses no gas at all, just human power, sun power, and a battery pack with a 30 mile range. It's not built for highways though, only for local roads and bike trails, as federal regs say a bicycle can't go faster than 20 miles an hour. Cotta says if enough people who drive about 30 miles a day climbed out of their cars and into an elf, the effect on greenhouse gas emissions could be startling.
7: Each one of these on the road takes about 28 tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere per year.
0: Compared with a, an equivalent car?
7: That's right. It mitigates the 28 tons. Right. So 100 of these on the road are the equivalent of a 4 megawatt wind turbine at about 20% of the cost.
0: Ah, Cost. Now, that's always one of the big questions about any new technology.
7: The base price is $4,000, and basically that's like a wholesale pricing. But we have over 400 orders of reservations currently, just from our website.
0: And that was before the Kickstarter campaign got underway. They reached their $100,000 funding goal in 12 days, and 40 people have actually paid for the vehicles. There's lots of buzz. Indeed, one benefit of a storefront is people walk by, see the elf in the window, and are intrigued. I grabbed a couple of window shoppers. Excuse me, what do you make of this?
3: Well I think it's fascinating. Um, It's kind of intriguing that you can be covered and fully protected and still just pedal your way to work or wherever,
0: so. How about you? What do you make of it?
8: I think it's exciting. Like, when I was a little kid, I always wondered if you could make a car, like a a car for real out of bicycles. So like, to me, this is just like the, it's like the sci-fi
0: orgasm of the future is now. (laughs) And I would, I would love to have one. That's Tim Morris and Steve Berm. Steve's a school teacher. For now, he commutes too far on major highways to make an elf practical. But he says it could be a perfect set of wheels for his wife. And it's not only casual passers-by who see the elf and like what they see. Bill Shamedes, the dean of the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke University, envisions the elf helping green the campus.
3: Well, I think it's such a wonderful, wonderful concept. First of all, we want people to get out and bike, and it's good for their health, and it's good for the environment. But riding a bicycle is problematic. You're out in the open, you don't have protection from the sun, and this wonderful invention, the elf you're actually enclosed, just like a little tiny car, and you've got solar power assistance to get up the hills. I think it's a great idea. I would love to set up a thing where, for example, we had some of our students, for example, at the Nicholas School, living in downtown Durham, and did the trek over to the Duke uh, campus, which is a few miles, using these little elves back and forth. What a great, great idea.
0: Professor Shamedes says students aren't the only ones who could benefit. This kind of invention could give everyone from ageing baby boomers to youngsters greater mobility, as well as helping to fight global warming. Back at Organic Transit's downtown factory, Rob Cotter explains another important feature of the elf.
7: We're trying to figure out basically how to do a bike factory in a box where we can... You saw how they nest together and ship and things like that, that makes them very transportable and be utilised by assemble points in downtown locations by low-skilled labour.
0: To make that possible, the ELF needs to be as modular as possible with pre-formed components, the frame, the electronics, and the body designed to just bolt or clip together. Rob pointed to the pile of panels along the sides of the showroom.
7: This is one of the uh, Trilon bodies. So Trilon is a composite of acrylic and recycled ABS A very conventional plastic and this is a vacuum formed body so whereas those other ones like that green one there takes us about two days to hand make the body this one they pop out every 20 minutes.
0: They're making them all locally along with the wiring for the battery and the electronics designed by mechanic Brian Heifel.
3: Right now I'm basically trying to make a bunch of quick disconnects so if your turn
9: signal switch breaks you just unplug it.
0: What kind of training do you have to have for this?
3: I graduated from NASCAR Technical Institute and I've been a bicycle mechanic for the past almost 10 years.
0: So you could do kind of like race cars, but you're doing bicycles instead? Yeah. By now, I really wanted a personal test drive in this powered trike, though I was a little apprehensive.
7: We call the green one, it's called the green onion. It was so light when we first built it. It was translucent. green. So,
0: so how safe do you think they are if somebody runs into them?
7: Safer than a bicycle. Well, actually, from years of uh, uh, dealing with human-powered vehicles decades ago, we realized that that aerodynamic skin was really a very safe thing. So when people crashed at 60 and 70 miles an hour, nothing happened to them. So this is kind of like riding around inside of a bicycle helmet. Let me pop this door open
8: here.
0: Okay. But with hands full of recorder and microphone, I wasn't sure if I could actually ride or steer the thing. I- indeed, I couldn't even work out how to climb into it.
7: So what I do, it's yes. kind of like getting in and out of a kayak. Right. So I take the big step. Keep your feet on the pedals, because it's much safest safest to keep on the pedals.
0: So, feet on the pedals and microphone stuffed inside my jacket, I was ready.
7: Up this track, like, make a left. Yes. Go up to that bull over there. See yeah. that bull statue? Make a right after that.
0: And I Just set off pedaling unsteadily into the traffic. Oh, 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 wow. Oh, okay. I've come to a red light, so I'm stopping. Oh, yes. She's letting me go. That's amazing. Okay. I'm turning in front of the traffic. Oh, wow. This is very wonderful. OK, it's quite a bit of, of actual pedalling, so it's not easy. But I could, of course, put the electric motor on. Maybe I'll try that. Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. I just put the motor on and it's great. OK, there's nothing coming, so I can turn around here. Oh, it's easy. You get a hang of it in like f- three minutes. I'm being followed by a fire engine. Well, except for the fire truck, it was fun, but more challenging than I'd expected. And given the turn signals and the traffic, there was a lot to remember. But it's certainly easier than learning to ride a bike. And the electric power on the hills was great. It also makes a stir. People stood and watched me weave my way down Durham's Main Street. One of them was Vince Provenzano.
5: I thought it was amazing. I, I obviously am uh, ecologically uh, minded. And to see something like that, it's, it's just phenomenal. Uh, I'm just curious as to... How much pedaling you have to do versus uh how much energy is stored in the batteries
0: well i have to say that uh, from my experience of going around the block it was harder to pedal than i expected but when i came to the hill i of course put on the little battery assist and oh it shot up the (laughs) hill it was great
5: i think it's phenomenal yeah i think it's a, a great combination of mode of transportation which you can obviously exercise And better yet, uh, if you need to just go off solar power, go off the solar power. And why not? It takes you outside.
0: Over 400 people seem to agree it's a worthwhile enterprise. They supported the Kickstarter campaign and may have helped assure its future. So don't be surprised to see a solar pedal-powered trike heading down a bike path near you soon. For Living on Earth, I'm Helen Palmer in Durham, North Carolina.
2: There are pictures of the elf and more at our website, LOE.org.
4: Coming up, some good news from the underwater world of coral reefs. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth.
2: I'm Steve Kerwood. For those of us who put on a few pounds or even a few kilos over the holiday season, there may be some consolation. It looks like the kilogram itself may be gaining weight. That's right. Scientists at Newcastle University in the UK have discovered that the original kilogram standard is ever so slightly heavier than it should be. Joining us now to discuss these findings is Dr. Peter He He's a professor of mechanical engineering at Newcastle University. Welcome to Living on Earth.
9: Hello. So where did the kilogram put on the weight? Around the middle? Uh, I guess it does. It's a cylinder, so that's probably the best place for it. It's a cylinder of a, an alloy of platinum iridium. It was made in the late 19th century, and the surface of it, we think, has been gaining a bit of mass
2: Now, I have to ask you, Peter, we still have a single physical standard for the kilogram?
9: That's right. It's the only one of the SI units that is still an artifact. It did used to be that the meter was defined by a physical artifact, but no longer. These days, the meter is defined in terms of wavelengths of light. To measure a meter, you have to count something of the order of a billion wavelengths of light. That's not really a problem. You can count that many wavelengths. But to do the same, to make a standard of mass, you would have to count a lot of atoms, orders of magnitude more atoms, 10 to the 26 or so, in order to make something about a kilogram. And that's really just beyond any counting scheme, electronic or otherwise, that we've got. The ultimate aim, of course, is to have all of the measurement units realized as in terms of atomic properties or fundamental constants like the speed of light or something and unfortunately that that hasn't hitherto been possible with the the standard of mass so we still need a standard kilo we do and um, we therefore have to keep a good eye on what's happening at the surface and whether we're exposing it to anything which might cause it to grow
2: how can you tell that the kilo has gotten too heavy if
9: the only thing you can measure it against is itself? That's an absolutely crucial point. We don't really know what's happening to it. We know what happens to it with respect to other kilogram artifacts made at about the same time. But in principle, one can only measure the differences between them. What we've done is to take samples of platinum iridium alloy and place them in similar environments, in similar laboratories, in fact, in the same laboratory in some cases. And the result is that You pick up two kinds of contamination, um, and we think that those two kinds must be present on the at least a a good fraction of the national standard prototypes, which are held by all of the developed countries. One of those types of contamination is, as you'd expect, a kind of carbonaceous contamination or or, or dirt, we might just call it, which is um, the same kind of carbon that you get on any surface exposed to air.
2: Aha, carbohydrates for the kilo, huh?
9: perhaps not not very nutritious carbohydrates, but they are carbon-based. The other form of contamination is, in fact, mercury, which is a bit of a surprise. But, of course, the the laboratories where these kilograms are kept, often the scientists have to make careful measurements of temperature and pressure. Until recently, has all been done using mercury thermometers or barometers. So probably over time it's quite likely that these have, one or two of these have been broken and led to a, a certain background of mercury vapor. And mercury forms a nice alloy with platinum, so that we've certainly found that very rapidly on clean pieces of platinum and platinum-iridium alloy, a, a mercury layer forms. What's the
2: scale of
9: this weight gain of the kilo? How serious
2: a problem is it?
9: It's certainly in the range of tens of micrograms, and probably of the order of a hundred micrograms. So it's one hundredth millionth of a kilogram. If we
2: were to imagine that we had a hundred million kilos of gold in front of us, we'd be off by a
9: single kilogram. That's right. It's very tiny. But there are one or two applications where it probably really is important to maintain something like that degree of accuracy. If you have a, a material which you you really need to make sure that you're receiving just as much material as was dispatched. Then a good way of accounting for that is to measure it, to weigh it, before and after it's sent. So, in particular, things like nuclear materials, very important to weigh them very accurately so that you can make absolutely certain that none of it has gone astray en route.
2: So, what's to be done to get the kilo on a weight loss program?
9: Well, probably with the mercury contamination, there's not a lot that can be done now. It probably gained quite a lot of mercury contamination early on, and that's slowly increasing as the mercury diffuses into into the polishing layer near the surface. The carbonaceous contamination, we've been working on a method involving exposure to ultraviolet light and ozone gas you can apply the same intensity of UV light and the same concentration of ozone and remove this carbonaceous contamination. In other words, sunbathing is what you're saying. It's a kind of sunbathing, particularly sunbathing in an environment which is quite rich in ozone. I wouldn't recommend it for humans, but it's very good for removing carbonaceous contamination. Oh, I see. I was hoping that maybe I could get rid of a few kilos that way, but... Um, I can tell you, you really wouldn't be happy to try that. It's quite an aggressive way of removing carbonaceous contamination from surfaces.
2: Peter Cumpson is Professor of Mechanical Engineering at Newcastle University in the UK. Thank you so much, Professor. Thank you. Are in dire straits. Late last year, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration proposed giving endangered species status to more than 60 different kinds of coral. Oceans around the world are seeing declines in healthy reefs. Scientists blame overfishing, habitat destruction, changed ocean chemistry, and especially hotter temperatures. But some corals in American Samoa are actually thriving despite the heat. At least that's what researchers at Stanford University recently reported in the proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Steve Palumby is a professor of marine science at Stanford University and a lead author on the research. He explained how corals bleach and otherwise react to the stresses of heat.
8: Coral bleaching is an event that happens when the water temperature gets a little too high for a coral. It, it has naturally an internal symbiont, an alga, that it, that it uses to photosynthesize and provide energy. And when the water temperature heats up, that algal interaction with the coral is, breaks down, and uh, the coral spits the alga out. And as a consequence, it mostly dies. 80 90% of them die after bleaching. It's called bleaching because they turn white before they
2: die. Where do you see uh, all these coral die-offs?
8: You know, you see them everywhere. The most recent ones, uh, serious bleachings, were in Southeast Asia, uh, before that in the Caribbean, uh, throughout the Pacific. There really hasn't been any single reef in the world which has been immune to, to at least one form or other of these problems.
2: Your research team, though, found a population of coral that Well, they're actually thriving in an environment where there are other corals of the same species around it are struggling. Can you tell me about that, please? This is
8: in a U.S. national park, the only U.S. national park south of the equator uh, in American Samoa. And the, the back reef lagoons in this park heated up during the summer to 33, 34, 35 degrees centigrade. In Fahrenheit, that's about 94, 95 degrees Fahrenheit, almost body temperature. And that's just way too hot for for most corals. They will bleach at much cooler temperatures than that. But the surprise was in these back reef lagoons in this very hot water, um, there were dozens of species of corals thriving and growing and seeming to do quite well. So we uh, began approaching this area with a simple question. How do these corals manage to live in such warm water, and what would that tell us about the potential of corals to do better in future warming oceans?
2: Yeah, I mean, that is the question, isn't it? How, how do these corals survive when the very same species just down the beach uh, don't?
8: What we think is going on here. Is that these back reef corals experience heat spikes just about every day? Turns out that low tide in this part of the world is mostly during the middle of the day. And at low tide, the back reef lagoons quiet down, the water motion about ceases, the water becomes still and warm. And for those couple hours of low tide, the temperature spikes, and then it cools off when the tide comes back up. And so we liken it to an exercise regime where a couple hours a day these corals have temperature exercise. They are exposed to high temperature. And our hypothesis is that this periodic heating is like a conditioning regime uh, that conditions them to be able to withstand longer-term
1: heat events.
2: What about the possibility... we're simply transplanting some of these heat-resistant uh, uh, corals to other parts of the ocean uh, to repopulate areas where their uh, species' brethren are dying off.
8: So that's a possible um, tool that could be employed in the future if we got really desperate about corals. The way I think about it, Steve, is that if this is happening and if it's a broad phenomenon that most corals can do, it buys us a little more time. It buys us a a few more decades to solve the global warming problem before corals are, around the world, way too uh, hot to survive.
2: And corals, of course, are so crucial in the marine ecosystem, providing habitat for fish uh, that so many other marine species, and, and us humans for that matter, rely on. So, if we can't figure this out, if we can't f- help coral adapt or figure out how this works, what would the ocean look like, say, 50 or 100 years from now?
10: If
8: reef corals were dead all, all over the world, those reefs would look like rubble fields, covered in algae, uh, mostly devoid of the kinds of fish that are, that are usually there, Fisheries in places around the world that rely on them uh, would collapse. There's about a billion people that rely on coral reefs for fish and uh, fisheries, either for income or for protein. Hundreds of millions of people get most of their animal protein directly from, from coral reefs. They also provide an enormous amount of value for surge and storm protection. After Hurricane Sandy, Um, the $60 billion in aid that is flowing into the Northeast is to help build storm protection. Well, coral reefs do this for free. They grow storm protection. Corals are going to be going through a pretty tough time in the future. But to be honest, it's the the human species that's going to have a much harder time.
2: So I'm wondering just how old are corals in terms of biology and evolution? And Uh, And if they've been through uh, different temperature regimes on the planet, might they have something to teach us?
8: I think that's an excellent perspective, Steve. The corals, as a a group, have been around for a quarter of a billion years. They have seen a lot of change. And our approach to this has always been to say, uh, let's look out there in the world at the variation in marine organisms. They have lived in our very diverse ocean for a long time, maybe they have some of the tools and some of the skills to react to changing climate uh, that we could use and with that we certainly know about. So, so part of our mission here is to, is to look for resilience in organisms to climate change, find out where wildlife is winning, and then use that knowledge to map resilience and hopefully use that to protect those areas that are more resilient uh, in the future.
2: Steve Palumbi is professor of marine science at Stanford University. Thank you so much, Steve.
8: It's a pleasure, Steve. Thank you very much.
2: Now, American Samoa sounds like an inviting place to go visit at this time of year. And the same might well be said of another Pacific island several thousand miles to the north. Here's Michael Stein with today's Bird Note.
10: Welcome to Midway Atoll, more than 1,200 miles northwest of Honolulu, winter home to nearly a million nesting albatrosses. Gathered together, they make a splendid racket. Most are Laysan albatrosses, huge, handsome seabirds with white bodies and dark, saber-shaped wings six feet across. Laysands return to Midway in November to breed. Roughly 450,000 pairs wedge their way into a scant two and a half square miles of land surface, creating one of the world's most spectacular seabird colonies. It may seem curious that Laysands nest in winter, when most birds nest in spring and summer. Well, the big birds forage mostly at night, so the longer hours of darkness in winter provide more time to find food for their rapidly growing chicks. Beginning in late January, when the single chick hatches, both parents will feed it for the next six months. And by mid-May, it may weigh seven pounds, even heavier than an average adult. The young bird will need that extra fat and energy as it learns to fly. By August, the once noisy colony is all but empty, the spectacle complete, as the albatross multitude returns to life on the ocean. Until next winter. I'm Michael Stein.
2: There are pictures of these amazing albatrosses at our website, LOE.org. Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Annie Sneed, James Kerwood, Megan Miner, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And check out our
4: Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Go Forward Fund and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at paxworld.com. Pax World, for tomorrow. P R I.